Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. everyone and welcome. This is Ilya. Uh, today for this episode, I have Carrie Dunn Baran with me and I'm really uh, happy to have uh, her here. Uh, I've, I've actually been using her work and for those of you who may not know, um, you may have heard of the five point scale. And so, um, and if you haven't, I bet you're kind of using a little bit of it anyway, but we'll see. So um, I have been working with educators for uh, over six years. Um, and this is a tool that you know we talk about during all of my professional development trainings, and people use it in so many amazing ways. Um, and you know, I, I thought it would be a great idea to bring the originator of it, um, and then it's gone so many you know different directions. And I, I, I really wanted to bring you um, the voice of the five-point scale. And and also, I know you're doing so much other work. So um, welcome, Carrie. And uh, could yeah, so could you just give let everybody know who you are um, and your background so um, they know the, the name uh, behind the, the tool? <laughs> sure, sure. Well, uh, my name is Carrie Dunbaran, and I'm an autism education specialist from Minnesota. And I worked, uh, I started working in special education in 1973 um, and went to grad school in the late 70s, uh, at which time I was introduced to autism. Um, There wasn't a lot known (laughs) and we were just beginning to close institutions at that time in our history. And so Minnesota contacted me. I was living in Illinois, and they contacted me to start a program in Minnesota. Um, And I ended up starting one of the first educational programs for kids with autism in Minnesota. And that was in 1980. Um, Early on in my work, I I was concerned about the lack of strategies uh, available for Uh, children who were uh, involved with explosive behavior. Um, The strategies at that time were somewhat punitive, uh, very rigid. Um, It just, I felt like we were missing something. They also did not work over time. They, sometimes a strategy would work to stop a behavior in the moment, but something was missing. I didn't feel like we got we were getting at what was going on. Why were all of these children um, losing control of their emotions, um, having such big responses, um, behavioral responses within the school setting? 
So that became my interest. And I have worked since the mid 80s, uh, almost exclusively looking at non-aversive ways of teaching kids with autism. And actually, when I think about um, the difference, I started focusing on teaching rather than fixing. And at that time, we were fixing autism. (laughs) And it wasn't working and it didn't feel right to me. So I'm a teacher and I I kept telling myself, you know, uh, if if my students couldn't read, I would be teaching them in a different way how to read. If they couldn't do math, I would be teaching a modified way of doing math. If they can't tolerate the educational environment, why are we punishing them? You know, that it was such a, a disconnect for me. So... Um, my entire career really has been spent searching for ideas and answers. And in 2003, I actually got a fellowship um, to study the neuroscience of challenging behavior as it applies to autism. Um, and it was wonderful. I, there were no programs at that time in the area of educational neuroscience, so I got to make my, I met, got to make it up. Basically. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, well, I think I'd like to go to Australia and work with Tony Atwood for a while. And so I got to do that. Uh, and I thought, well, I think I'd like to go to England and uh, to Cambridge and uh, work a little with Simon Baron Cohen. So I got mm-hmm. to I think I'd like to go to Yale for a while. And at that time, Ami Klin was there and I'd like to work with Ami Klin. So these, I had this incredible, incredible opportunity to take a year off and, um, and follow this idea that neurologically something, there should be some kind of learning process that we can address for children who lose um, control of their emotions. And what came out of that year uh, was a a lot of things. Uh, One was a textbook uh, called Learners on the Autism Spectrum, which I co-edited with Dr. Pamela Wolfberg, Mm -hmm. Um, because we both recognized that there were teachers were not getting the information for autism. I had done a a survey in Minnesota and found that of all of the um, universities that prepared teachers, zero had any coursework uh, specific to autism. So it didn't make sense that we were asking teachers to teach and they didn't have the background. And at that time, too, was a realization that there is something different for this child uh, that's different from maybe other disability areas that they did have education in. So it's like, okay, what is it that's going on here and how can we best um, help in a positive, long, long-term skill-building way? Um And the other thing that came out of it was my book um, uh, that I co-wrote with my fellow teacher here in Minnesota, Mitzi Curtis, 
<clears throat> that was the incredible five-point scale. Excuse me. <clears throat> I should have gotten water myself. Um, <clears throat> then also my book for children, young children, When My Worries Get Too Big, which was taking, actually taking some research that I had uh, read and learned about during my fellowship and relating it to teaching very young children um, who needed uh, to learn about emotional regulation and um, regulating their bodies. Right. You know, it's interesting as you, as I, as you were talking, I'm thinking about my own um, education as a teacher. And I remember, you know, I've told my story, you know, historically in the podcast about, you know, recognizing that my own son was having some challenges. And I think one of the things I noticed, and it was happening concurrently with my, I had changed careers. And so it was happening concurrently. <laughs> and I started in one of my, I took a special education course, like one, right? And in there, in the textbook, there's like, you know how the textbooks are columned, right? So it was like one column and a half about autism. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> And yeah. I was like reading it and I was like, wow, this is super interesting. I wonder, you know, hmm, I just like, wow, I wonder there might be something here that I should know more about. Um, and here it is now, right, 22 years later, and it's like all the work that I do. Um, but but it's super fascinating how you've taken one particular aspect of it, and I would say a, a very important one, mm-hmm. um, and just really just dug deep into it and have, you know, really making it something that we can put a big lens on because I think it, it not only helps just kids with autism, right? We, it helps all kids who are struggling with learning, um, especially with these big emotions and, um, behaviors that kind of follow after that. So, so I'm guessing the, the five point scale came Mm -hmm. from that year long research then. Yes. Um, it did. And let me just say that you really pinpointed it for me, <laughs> but that um, early on, I realized that more than any other issue, explosive behavior negatively impacts anybody's chance for success. And the, what, the, what my research showed, uh, reviewing the research, showed that um, emotional control is, I mean, it's, like you said, it's, it's across the human spectrum. It's everybody has, we all have varying levels of emotional control. And there are some issues that are, that do seem to be part and parcel of the profile in autism, um, a lack of understanding of emotional concepts and um, inflexible thinking and um, difficulty understanding social and emotional um, nonverbal communication. Um, So it's like there are issues that are specific to children with autism, and they're also specific to uh, one's, um, it disrupts one's ability to learn the, the skills needed for emotional regulation. Right. And I think that's what this, this tool is. um, And and I think people use versions of this in a lot of different ways. Um, 
to help with, I think, yes, emotional regula- regulation, but also um, the self-awareness around emotions and what I'm feeling and what my body is telling me. And, and I know we're kind of getting into the weeds a little bit here <laughs> with it. Um, but if, but, but, for our listeners who might not be aware of what this is, and hopefully they're maybe looking it up now as, as we're talking, but um, can you give like an overview of what the five-point scale is? Sure. Um, I think the most important thing that I want people to understand is it's a teaching tool. And if you just make a shift in your brain, um, you know, most of the time there people think about explosive behavior, um, a loss of emotional control as being behavioral um, and they look at it through a behavioral lens. Um, What can I do to stop this? What, you know, if I do this, um, if I, if I reward the good behavior enough, this is never going to happen. Um, And what I found is that that simply isn't true, that there's a lack of skills involved with losing your control of yourself emotionally. So what it is, is it's a teaching tool that strives to teach those skills. And those skills can be like real varied. Um, Let me just give an example. Well, first of all, let me just tell you that Simon Baron Cohen, remember the researcher Mm -hmm. in at Cambridge, he had a theory at that time uh, called uh, highly systemized learning theory. And what that said was that um, individuals with autism um, have, for the most part, difficulty with um, conceptual learning, but have a big strength in systemizing. And systems would include, you know, colors, numbers, shapes, stats, you know, just... You know, train train cars, and there mm-hmm. uh, it could it's uh, organizational a um, way of organizing like the right. information. Yeah, mm-hmm. yep. So um, <clears throat> when I returned to the classroom after my fellowship, I was working with a boy in middle school, and he was in the hallway. It was an autistic boy, and he was in the hallway, and he. Um, he really liked socializing, and but he would get really loud. And I would try to help him by shushing him. <laughs> and, you know, I'd go, shh, and he would say, shut up, stop doing that. You know, so um, obviously my strategy was not working. So I really stepped back and I thought, okay, what am I trying to do? I'm I'm trying to help him. I don't want to take him out of the hallway because he's socializing and that's what I want him to do. I want him to have that opportunity. I didn't want that loud behavior to to interfere with that wonderful social behavior. Um, So then I thought, okay, shushing isn't working. (laughs) Not only is it not working, but he is responding in a very defensive way. So that must mean that he doesn't really know that he's too loud or he doesn't understand that he's getting too loud. And so um, I wrote a a five-point scale. One was no no voice. A two was a a whisper voice, a, a small voice. Um, a three was 
a voice that just like this, that we would talk to another person in the hallway. A four voice was a loud voice, and that might be used outside at recess. And a five was a screaming voice, and that could be used in emergencies or maybe at a ball game. Um, but I, I didn't want to say that um, that a loud voice was bad because it's not. If you need to yell, you need to yell. <laughs> if you want to go to a ball game and scream, it's not. That's not a bad thing. We all do that. So, I didn't want to use good and bad. I wanted to. I didn't want to put a judgment on a voice volume. So instead, uh, we did the five point scale, and I wrote a story for him uh, about well, you know, a one is no voice at all, and that's maybe when you're not supposed to talk in a classroom or um, you're watching a movie at a movie theater. Um, a two, that whisper, that's kind of like your voice um, in the library. Three, like I said, is a, a voice where you would be talking to your friends in the hallway. And that four voice, that's when your voice volume gets louder. So in writing the story for him, he was really interested in the topic and um, the idea is that this would be something that you we traditionally teach by using social and emotional concepts. You know, people were not supposed to get loud. Well, why not? And what does that mean? It's we use we're using words to try to define the behavior that we're trying to change. And so if I were looking at Simon Baron Cohen's systemizing, hyper-systemizing theory, then I'd say, okay, maybe if I put it into a system and I'm going to use numbers as my system, then it'll be easier to understand. I'm going to break it down. Instead of just saying you're too loud, that's too simplistic. Uh, and instead of saying you need to be quiet or stop talking, that's... I mean, that's not even right, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> like, of course I want him to talk. <laughs> so um, instead of all of that, getting, a, again, making that shift away from a narrow view of behavior and really looking at, okay, I'm going to use this theory, this educational theory by Dr. Simon Baron Cohen, and I'm going to use it to teach this young boy how to be aware of and notice his own voice volume. So we did that. We made the five-point scale. I wrote the story, and we reviewed it. And then I gave him a little, like, business card scale, um, one through five. And I said, just keep this with you, and I'm going to keep one. Mm -hmm. And if when we're out in the hallway, how about – if, because sometimes you don't know that you're getting too loud, and I get that, and that you know that's okay, um, but you can work on it. So uh, when you're in the hallway, if your voice gets too loud, I'm just. How about if I just hold up my five point scale, and you can see me holding it up, and this is just between you and me. Nobody else is going to know because I didn't want him embarrassed because obviously shushing was embarrassing. Um, so he agreed to it. So that was our plan, and it worked beautifully. So it worked so well that then I started thinking about it in terms of teaching someone to relax. Mm -hmm. 
And I developed the anxiety scale, which would be one is calm all the way up to losing control at a five. You know, you're kind of a little bit nervous and then you get a, you know, um, concerned, concerned and a little bit nervous, maybe at a three, a four is angry or, you know, really, really intensely worried. And then a five is a loss of control. And what I did with that scale then was introduce it to my entire class and mm-hmm. we would check in three times a day. How, you know, where are we on this scale? And because I didn't put a value judgment on the numbers, we got away from those kids who were perfectionists and they didn't want to be anything more than a, you know, an absolute perfect. So right. I, I really, I really recommend that you don't use words like good and bad or just right. There's a, there's a method called the alert program and I love it. And it's exactly the same idea. It is a system for teaching your body's alert level, but they put just right on number three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, all these kids that were working with this OT who was using the alert program, they were all rating themselves at a three all the time because they wanted <laughs> to be just right. right, <laughs> so right. That also led to me thinking, you know, we don't want to use judging words and keeping judgment out of a scale is what really has been the ticket, I think, to making it successful. If you put judging words in there, you're going to have kids not want to use it. Um, they're going to reject it. It's going to be as embarrassing as shushing. <laughs> right. No. And I, I think you hit on two things that, um, and, and I, I had written down the question and you are, you answered it, but um, I think, you know, right now there's this big emphasis on, and I think there's different terms for it, but you know, if you, if you look through social media of all the different platforms, there's this big emphasis on um, feeling a certain way, right? We want to feel good in quotes and feel calm all the time in quotes. And I think sometimes the range of emotions that humans feel are sort of given this judgment. And you talked about that. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things, the conversations, uh, in-depth conversation I've gotten into with many teachers is the concept of when we're asking students to be quiet or lower their voices or behave in a certain way, um, are we then asking them to sort of negate the emotions that they're feeling? And we, we don't want to do that. And, and I love that you said that we don't want to attach a judgment around how they're feeling because if, if they need to yell, they need to yell. And I think part of it is the explaining of the why. And I think the explaining of the tool and of the scale that you're using, using given the particular situation um, is so important because I think uh, we, we, we need to let people feel the way they feel, but then we need to, and I, I think we'll probably get to this, we'll talk about the strategies that go along with that. Um, 
But I, I love that you right out of the gate are saying words are super important. The words, the choices that you use when you're creating these and also the judgment, um, you know, taking away the judgment around emotions. And I hadn't really thought about the judgment around the number, but it totally makes sense. I used to do performance evaluations in adults and that everybody wanted to be, you know, whatever the highest rating was for yeah. that organization. Yeah. <laughs> and why wasn't I there? Right. And what do I need to do to get there? And all of these things, and it, because there's this concept that if you weren't at that particular level, then there was a negative association with not being there. Meanwhile, it's yeah. no, everyone has mm-hmm. development areas, right? We all have things we need to work on. Um, and I think the other piece is really breaking things down very specifically so that they're um, like manageable chunks, as we say, right? So if you, you know, if you're telling like the boy you're working with, you you know, you need to lower your voice or, you know, well, what does that, what does that mean? I don't know what you mean, lower my voice, like what's wrong with my voice? And so, (laughs) right, a lot of modeling then comes into play here around the different levels and things. But like, again, I think I'm jumping ahead into how to use, how to use the particular tool. And um, but thank you for hitting those those two things because I think it's super important. Sure. So if we were going to look at, um, you know, now we have, I, I, and I know on your website you have um, a, a short video of yourself teaching. It's it's from uh, when my worries get too big, and it's it's teaching exactly what you were talking about, like the anxiety scale, the calm, um, right. and and the awareness. And I, I'm big of about building self-awareness for people. Um, so, and I know you get into strategies there. So can we talk a little bit about, um, maybe what a scale like that would look like and then how you can help students or, you know, children or people you're working with go from, you know, let's say the calm place to, or let's say they're at the, the five place where they have, or four or five where they're you know, into anxiety or maybe having some behaviors that are undesirable at the moment, I should say, um, and how to bring them back, you know, how to bring them back um, and, and kind of the work around that type of a thing. Because a lot of educators are using it for exactly that. For uh, looking at like, the anxiety scale you're talking yes, about? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Let me, let me talk about one thing first, just because it is confusing, I think, to some people. Um, the anxiety scale is probably the most uh, embraced of all the five point scales. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that, I think that and maybe the voice volume scale. I, I do go into elementary schools, particularly here in Minnesota, where more people are familiar with my work. And there, there is a, fi- a five point scale volumes, voice volume scale, you mm-hmm. know, that the principal has put up as a f- building wide teaching tool. Mm-hmm. And um, that is awesome. And the use of the anxiety scale is also awesome. And I'm going to, uh, I'll go into more depth about that with you in one second. First, I'm going to um, just mention that you can take almost any social or emotional um, concept and break it into five parts and make it easier to understand for somebody who's not quite getting it. And let me give you an example of a common problem at in the school environment and the home environment, and that's swearing. Mm, okay, cool. And think, <laughs> about, think about what your typical response to swearing would be. What would you say? 
right? If so, so if like my child um, swore, mm-hmm. yeah, I, 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 my initial would be to s- probably snap back and say, "What? Like, w- what did you just say? Like, why are you saying that?" <laughs> Right. It's basically, you would say, don't do that. <laughs> right, right, right. In some way, in some way, whether you're sending right. messages, mom, the mom message, or <laughs> a teacher might say, we don't swear in school, or that's not okay. Um, you know, that... Inappropriate language. <laughs> inappropriate. Love that. <laughs> They're just taking it to a whole new level of what is inappropriate. Um, yeah. So think about um, think about swearing for a child who doesn't really um, understand people very well. That is confused by people and their behavior and their decision making. Um, and they are in school. And guess what? T- what get guess what the students are doing out of when they're not near the teacher, they're swearing. So no swearing in school is simply not true. It's not the rule because kids are swearing all the time in school. The rule is don't swear around teachers. (laughs) Right. Um, And um, one of the things that um, a teacher down in, um, in uh, El Paso, Texas, shared a video with me. And I, if I was doing a a visual workshop, I'd show it to you. Um, It was really, really telling because what they did was take that exact issue of swearing. And she had a group of boys in a social skills group, and they all seemed to have at some level a problem with the words that they were using Um, they were either, they sounded threatening to other people. They would say something that, uh, sounded threatening. I know one boy, it was around the early times of, um, school violence, um, big time. And where we had just, I think it was really right after Columbine Mm -hmm. and they had these rules that you couldn't even joke about bombs. Right. And so he went up to uh, the principal who was monitoring the lunchroom and said, would it be all right if I brought, um, if I had a bomb in my backpack, would that be okay? And the principal was very uneasy about the question and said, well, no, no, there's, you cannot bring a, you know, I think he asked about a gun and, or a bomb. That was it. Would a, would a gun be okay? Would a bomb be okay? Would a little gun be okay? Would a gun without bullets be okay? I mean, he just, <laughs> just kept, kept asking for this clarification. <laughs> right, right. And the principal got really, really worried. He he didn't know this boy very well. And so ended up, of course, calling the parents and having a meeting. And, you know, it's just all about how do we handle this? Because it sounds really threatening to me. And the boy's words were not threatening to him. And he, he felt like they were just asking good questions. And so trying to help him understand that the principal saw his words as a, as fives. Yeah. And he saw his words as two, they were okay. They made sense. They were reasonable. Um, but the principal saw them as a five. So that was, there's where the communication fell apart. And it was, he got that when we use the five point scale to sort of 
described, there was a difference in perspective of the words that he was using and how he was talking so that um, the kids on a whole, their, their, their scale was a one were nice words and they made other people feel good. Hmm. And two were okay words. And, you know, those were just sort of, you know, let's just have a chat words. Three words might make another person feel uncomfortable. Four words might make them angry and insulted. And five words, they would feel threatened. So the teacher was able to take all kinds of examples of words and things that kids might say to each other or students might say to teachers um, and plug them in to right. that scale. Um, and when I thought about it, it was like, okay, wow. Look at the difference between how this teacher looked at words and how they influence and impact how other people think about you versus just saying, don't swear. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that's amazing. I know people have used it as well for, um, different types of topics. So similar to having a gun at school or, you know, similar types of topics that could make people uncomfortable and then sort of using the tool in, in exactly that way to help, um, you know, a student understand that these topics can be talked about in certain ways, in certain contexts, in certain locations with certain people, but really breaking it down very specifically so that they could understand the why behind it and know what the, I, I, I guess for lack of a better way of saying it, uh, what the parameters are for using certain words and talking about certain topics. Exactly. You're kind of diagramming yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I see it in my head. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, okay. The anxiety scale, what and how to teach that to, to somebody who does have um, a, a, a poor emotional regulation skills. Um, I use that check-in scale. I think the check-in scale is so valuable so that a one is I'm feeling fine a two is some, okay, it's not the best day of my life, but I'm okay. A three is I'm a little nervous. A four, um, I'm getting upset. And a five, I'm, I'm going to lose it. I, I can't be here. Um, so you have this check-in scale and it can be individualized. It can be a group check-in scale. And then each person can have their own individual list of things that make them feel at different um, numbers. And mm -hmm. then what can I do about it? And it, maybe I can go for a walk. Maybe I can listen to a book on tape over in the corner here. Maybe I can uh, talk to somebody about it. Maybe I can draw for a while. Um, maybe the teacher can stop talking to me for a while. You know, that might be mm -hmm. part of the plan. Mm -hmm. Um, but the ticket, the ticket to an anxiety scale is that the caregiver has to know what twos and threes look like for that person. Because if you wait to intervene when somebody is already at a four, it, you decrease yeah. the chances that you're going to be affected or effective, excuse me. Instead, you're liable to push a four into a five. 
Because a four, you're standing on the edge of the cliff. <laughs> you know, the five is you're you're diving over it. And so oftentimes, just uh, our words can create a, an an escalation uh, in anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that's a really important piece. Um, if you want to teach relaxation, you really have to teach it at a one. And it is um, like anybody else, relaxation has to be taught repetitively and often in a highly systematic way. It's what you do with your yoga mm -hmm. sessions and your you know, Pilates or whatever it is that you do to relax yourself. That is, if it isn't a system, if it isn't a sequence of predictable actions, it's going to be new each time and it's not going to be as effective. So if you, um, that little calming sequence in when my worries get too big, mm -hmm. that calming sequence is based on what they call habit memory. Now, when you are anxious, you're going to start pulling in information from all over your environment, and you're going to have to sort through all of the information about what's happening and figure out what to do so that you don't panic and fight or, you know, either right. move away or fight. Okay. That's a fight or flight, you know, calming that fight or flight response. Um the way to do that, and this is in the regular research in the area of anxiety, not specific to autism necessarily, but you can pull it in, and I did, in using that calming sequence. It is taking that habit memory, which can override anxiety. Right. In a situation, you're faced with the situation, oh my gosh, uh, I need to do all of these things, pull in all this information sort it through cognitively and search my memory for what did I do last time? Did it work? All of these things. This is what we do when we face a stressful situation. Well, if you have an overlearned, overpracticed routine on habit memory, you can do that first and calm your body. And then you can think clearly <laughs> and make a good decision. But you can't, you can't if you don't have a skill to control your emotional level, you can't control those emotional thoughts and feelings. Right. And I think that's when I look at, you know, I think oftentimes people look at your, your work and say, oh, this is great for kids. And as you say it, I'm like, no, this is, this is what I'm, I learn. I mean, I'm doing an additional teacher training now and it's about, um, working uh, with trauma and and it is you know it's the same set of skills right we're, we're learning how to kind of mini minimize what activates us and it's um, breaking it down into these smaller chunks and it really is not just just for kids it's really for everyone again and and age does not matter <laughs> right well, I think everybody can agree that this last year, uh, I mean, if you're not anxious, if you weren't anxious, you are now, right? <laughs> and I have always kind of been prone to anxiety um, and used, uh, made a lot of use my entire life uh, out of relaxation, out of need. <laughs> right. I have kind of an anxious 
brain. So now you can imagine um, I'm in therapy. I mean, you know, it's like it, it goes, all of us have had anxiety overdrive right. because of the lack of predictability. You know, when is the, when is the pandemic going to end? When, uh, when is this going to change? When can I go back to work? When can I go to the store? When, you know, when's my child going back to school? I mean, all of the unknowns cause stress and anxiety in everyone. So you can imagine that for your son, it's going to be times 100. Right. Because the current research in the area of emotion regulation, the researchers really are thinking the next time they write a new definition, a new DSM definition for autism, it will it will include emotional regulation, dysregulation. Right, right. I, I'm, I'm really surprised because I actually did a, a small, um, I would say a mini session uh, on breaking down the, the criteria in the DSM-5. And it's so fascinating that it's not in there. And, yeah. and whenever I do presentations, I say, I, you know, there are these, it's not part of the criteria, but I'm going to tell you, I've never met anyone that I've worked with that does not have some level of, you know, emotional dysregulation, I guess, for lack of a better term, but, you know, who doesn't have some level of anxiety um, and, and their scale, I, I wonder what you think about this, but um, since we're on the topic, is the scale slightly different for, uh, in your opinion, for those who have uh, autism? Because, you know, I've heard from my son and from other people I've worked with that, you know, anxiety can run really already higher than baseline for other people. So, so is the scale different, you think, or do you think it can, we can still teach it in a way that it makes sense that a one is the same for everyone, like it's calm? Right. Yes, it, it, you, it can be. What I think that that tells us is that relaxation in some form needs to be a part of everyone's every day. Mm. So if you're highly anxious, then you then having routines throughout your day that that uh, help to calm your anxiety, it are need that's needed. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's this. A great strategy called mood induction mm-hmm. because anxiety, there are two things about anxiety that are clear in the research. One, it's the most contagious of all emotions. Hmm. So if you are anxious, everyone in the room is going to feel it. Mm-hmm. it, it is, it's palatable. And so as somebody who wants to help an anxious person, first and foremost, you need to be very, very uh, vigilant in keeping yourself calm, in understanding that the best thing you can do for this person in this moment is to remain as calm as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. And when I talk um, to people about it, I think of my dog. Um, I lost her three years ago, but she was um, trained to work with explosive children. Mm -hmm. And when one of my students would lose control of his emotions or her emotions and start screaming or throwing something, 
Claire would get very little. Mm-hmm. She would, she squatted down kind of like a, you know, how a dog crawls, like, yeah, yeah. like a, if <laughs> in a military, think of a military dog crawling. Yeah. Up. Like the little, cr- yeah, I know what you're saying. Oh, and right. I'm sorry about the loss of your dog. I have two labs, so right. I can totally relate. Yes. But that, yeah. that little mini crawl that they do when they're sort of, um, I don't know, being submissive, I guess, to whoever is in front of them in some way, exactly. right? Is that, yeah. Yeah. Well, Claire, Claire was a yellow lad. So. Yeah. I saw, I saw pictures. Yeah. <laughs> so she would, um, she would get down and crawl and just, she'd crouch first and she would look away and then she would do that little military crawl. And to be honest, I never taught it to her. She knew this. I would. I started t- bringing her to school when she was only three months old. So she was always around these children, and she she would just sort of military crawl towards and stop and just sort of gauge. And oftentimes what would happen is then the child who was losing control of her emotions would look at Claire and begin to calm because Claire was seriously sending her calming vibes. That's right. Um, and so I started thinking about how Claire intuitively knew to get really small and quiet. And I started teaching when I started consulting with teachers um, I brought that lesson with me and I said, when, when your student or for parents, when your child is at a three and you've all established what a three is because you're using the scale, mm-hmm. <laughs> a three means a two or a three means a little off, either one. And there, an anxiety is going up. You can either add to it or take away. And your goal is to start taking away from that anxiety at a two or a three, bringing them back down to a one. And one of the things is to get really small. You can Mm -hmm. talk slower. You can talk quieter. I mean, you can just, just make your presence small. How did I... How did I get on this subject? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we were talking about, yeah, like, like, it's a strategy um, that's so, so right. good and so valuable. You know, back in the, I want to say late 80s, um, I did, it was either the late 80s or early 90s when I did uh, teach training in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they always said was, if you have a problem with an explosive child, or somebody whose behavior is going to get really big or really um, loud, stop talking. Now, mm-hmm. first step, stop talking. And that really struck me um, it could, because it was the same as my thinking about getting very small. Um, and so stop talking, uh, get small, and have a plan for redirection. So say you've, you're working with a, your child and you're, you know that when, uh, when number one, when he has circles under his eyes, that means he didn't sleep well or maybe has allergies. That's going to decrease your tolerance for anything. 
Um, maybe, uh, maybe he's talking really loudly. And when he starts talking loudly or um, repetitively, sometimes that's also a sign that he's a little off today. He's, he's a little anxious. So what you want to do is you want to bring him down to a one so that it is a level playing field so that your son feels like he is truly at a one, even mm-hmm. though typically he has all of this anxiety. Well, um, the strategy that I think I started talking about, uh, which I forgot <laughs> where I was going, um, is uh, called mood induction. And basically what that would be is because um, the research also tells us that transitions are difficult for people with autism. It's Mm -hmm. That's Eric Crushane's research from years ago at uh, University of Southern California, I believe. Um, But anyway, he he showed that actually disconnecting and, and moving your brain from one thing to another is tends to be slower. So disconnecting and moving to another thing, that's a, that's a transition. And because transitions are difficult, then having a predictable, pleasurable activity at the end of every transition is helpful Mm -hmm. because it's kind of like resetting. You reset down to a one. So I, I had to take that bus to school. So by the time I get to school, I'm already at a 3.5. <laughs> right. So coming into school, one thing that I noticed is schools would have a bus behavior checklist. And it was like, oh, my God, he's already a 3.5 because it wasn't a very good ride, right? And <laughs> now you're going to point that out to him. <laughs> and, and, and you're going to let him know that he lost some kind of privilege. Well, um, hello, here he goes. Boom. He's up to a four. So right. it's like, and then the the chances of getting through the day, because not only is anxiety the most uh, contagious, it's also cumulative. So that means that if you're at a 3.5 when you enter the school building or you get online for your Zoom meeting, um, or you get to grandma's house, um, the idea is to have a predictably positive, repetitive activity that you can do to reset. Hi, this is Elia. Just wanted to let you know that SSG also offers trainings, consultations, and parent coaching. Uh, check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com, and I'd love to hear from you. And it's sort of like working in the in the um, opposite way. I'm thinking it's, it, it, instead of getting the the repeated negative reinforcement that I think many kids are used to, um, we're, we're replacing it with a a positive uh, reinforcer, so that that. Um, that cycle kind of shifts instead of it being, I know what happens when I do these things that people don't want me to do. It's now, oh, if I do these things, I can feel better. And people, you know, I, I, there is like a, a positive association with that. Is, do I have that right? Yes, uh, that's very good. Um, you know, the book, When My Worries Get Too Big, was originally written for one of my students, Nicholas. And Nicholas was 
highly anxious kindergartner. And by the end of kindergarten, he had full-blown school phobia. Mm. Um, he loved to write stories about stuff. It was just one of the things that I would do. He was in a regular kindergarten class, and I would come in just sort of as a support staff person, and we would work on emotions uh, kind of indirectly. And so I would write these stories about water towers. He loved water towers. <laughs> um, and... So we would give water towers, you know, personalities and draw them and that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. the book, When My Worries Get Too Big, uh, was written at the end of his kindergarten year um, to help him learn how to relax his body. And we, before the book, we started doing the calming sequence, which is kind of like rub head or squeeze hands, rub head, rub legs. Um and I would have him just stop where he was and close his eyes and take a deep breath. And then we would do the calming sequence and then we'd take another cleansing breath. And when he, what happened was his mother homeschooled him for first grade because he was just, he couldn't go to school. Uh, he was too anxious. Um, and so um, I would help working with his mom on that calming sequence. Well, he is, let's see, how old is Nicholas? I think Nicholas is probably close, close to 20, maybe now, wow. um, about 20 years old. And he, um, no, he's older than that, actually. He's got to be about <laughs> 25. And um, I interviewed him last year. I went over to his house and we talked because I wanted to know what about what I taught him at age five worked for him as an adult. Mm -hmm. And that calming sequence was what really worked for him. It really solidified his own understanding of, of where he, his body was one through five and understanding a whole bunch of things he could do at eight, at level two and three to avoid mm -hmm. fours and fives. Right. And, and he even, he talked in numbers and that's what was really interesting to me. I mean, here he's like 25 years old and he's just this beautiful young man. And, but he still is talking in numbers that when he mm -hmm. feels like a three, you know, he takes his, he has a cat that walks on a leash. So he takes, <laughs> he would take his cat for a walk. And right. he said he takes his cat for a walk every day as part of his relaxation. Right. So that's that's amazing. Right. That's exactly what we would want anyone to learn. And, and if we have that common language and I do know schools do are teaching that as common language of being able to for you know students to say what number they're at and for teachers to also model that behavior and say what number they're at as well. So it's sort of this universal language. And there are many schools doing that, which I think is awesome. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's funny that you talk about the, the cat because um, you mentioned uh, Claire before, and mm -hmm. I, I want to I make sure we have time to talk a little bit about some of the other work that you're doing. Um, and some of it, I, it seems like is where Claire kind of comes into, the, into play, yes? Yes, yes. She was my, my muse, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was Claire and my camp. I, I ran a camp for many years in northern Minnesota for, um, for 
kids with autism that were uh, somewhat verbal and able to socialize. So um, able to benefit from group group socialization. We had uh, the autism side of Minnesota already had a number of camps, but I started this one specifically for that group um, right at when uh, Asperger syndrome was first added to the DSM. Um, <clears throat> so it was kind of that group. And that group um, over the years, uh, I'd have to say that the girls that I worked with were gave me so much insight into the whole issue of socialization and emotional regulation. They just were able to verbalize so much to me that I learned so much about autism through them mm -hmm. um, to the point where I really think that if they do, when they do another DSM, mm -hmm. I would uh, highly recommend that all the scientists um, have an advisory group of adults with autism. Yeah. Um, because it is, it, I mean, without that input, it's like you said, why in the world is emotional regulation not even in there? <laughs> what about the sensory piece? Oh my gosh. Right. People, poor Temple Grandin was talking about that in the late eighties, you yeah. know, and guess what? In the nineties, they were still, many researchers were still denying it and, you know, refusing to accept that there's a sensory issue involved. So it's, yeah, they need it's still evolving. Right? And yeah, they need to hear it from the horse's mouth. They need to understand it from uh, a patient's perspective. I mean, right. like any doctor would interview a patient about what does that feel like? And it just is, I think, outrageous that we don't do that for yeah. the, for the doesn't uh, make sense. mental illness, yeah. right? Any kind of any kind of emotional problems are, we don't interview the person to be part of the, part the conversation of the yeah. right, the conversation about what is this and how do we help? Right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I, as we, as we talk about um, other work that you're doing, I know you, uh, we had chatted briefly about um, a, another book that you have written and uh so that's, is that Adeline's uh, Claire? Yes, Adeline's Claire. And Adeline, the, it, what it, it is an early chapter book. Um, and Adeline is a highly anxious fourth grader. <laughs> and she has not really <clears throat> made any friends in school. She's really anxious in the school environment. Um, the book itself, um, I based Adeline's character on a number of girls that I worked with at my camp. And I based Claire's behavior, the dog, the therapy dog in the book, on my own Claire, my own dog. And um, there is uh, some work from uh, Dr. Porges. I don't know if you've heard the term neuroception. No, I don't think I have. Yeah. Neuroception is, um, it's a concept that unfortunately isn't well known in special education, but it should be um, because it really is a, it's our body's ability to understand whether or not we're in danger. So is this a dangerous environment that I'm in or is this a safe environment? And one of the issues would be, um, what they call oppositional defiant disorder. Right. 
if you think about that, I've always hated the term. And I've always thought, you know, this is a description of behavior. It's it's a description, not a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. But basically, what what it might be is a child who's got that label or any child who you think is being oppositional could be responding to um, an ineffective or um, delayed system of neuroception. So they're interpreting what should be safe environments as as dangerous or unsafe. Their body is in the brain. Um, I had a student named Tony, and I took Tony's uh, years ago. And Tony is also, Tony's now, I think, almost 40. Um, but Tony, what he would do is he would dive underneath the desk from time to time And he liked to read his book underneath the desk or underneath a table in um, in a corner of the room. And in interviewing Tony as an adult, I learned years later after I worked with him that he was in a constant state of fear in the school and that underneath that table helped him to relax. But guess what? The program at that time was one of compliance. So the focus was for him to get out from underneath the desk. <laughs> so we were pushing him over the cliff each and every yeah. time. Um, anyway, okay, so I've got Tony in my head. I've got neuroception in my head. I've got all those girls at camp, and I've got Claire. And so what came out of it was this early chapter book, and it's called Adeline's Claire. And Adeline, uh, Adeline's teacher brings in a puppy to help Adeline remain calm, kind of uh, because animal therapy is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I found so with Claire coming to school with me. Um, and um, also at, what I found is that when I would have my students take Claire for a walk through the hallways or out um, on the playground, kids would gather around. Mm -hmm. So the two objectives for Adeline, for having Claire, was to help her relax in the school environment because of a possible disruptive system of neuroception, um, and and also to help her make friends. Um, And basically, it's set up so that there are two parallel stories. Uh, One is Adeline, and one is Claire, and there are animals in the science room, and Claire, lo- or Adeline loves science, and she loves the animals in the science room, and they all love her. So it's kind of like Charlotte's Web in that there is this animal story that's going alongside the human story, and Claire gets all kinds of good advice from some rats and uh a guinea pig and you know the the animals <laughs> in the science room are very smart often much smarter than the, than the adults <laughs> and so um yeah anyway it's a lovely story i i it's probably the most fun i ever had was writing that story and the book is available but the book uh what i've decided i wanted to do this in the covid months uh, is teach myself how to write a screenplay, and I'm using the, that story to 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 write a screenplay. So I've I finished my first draft 
of changing the book into a movie. So um, that's great. Yeah. So it's going to be a while. I'm, I have to learn <laughs> all the right formats and whatnot. And of course, then I have to get the right person interested in it. But um, my <laughs> but whole- it sounds like you're in a, a great direction. I mean, it, it will be I think it would be such a cool thing to have as a resource um, for families and for educators and, and for children, too, to be able to, to learn from that in, in, a, in a different way, I think. Well, what I found with the book, um, when I did, when I first wrote the book, I did these field kind of field test things and I gave it, gave the book to 12 third graders and 12 uh, sixth graders, kind of because that's sort of the, the reading level in between Mm -hmm. them. And I asked them to read it and then we had a focus group. And what I found was how often kids, these were just kids in the third and sixth grade. Um, Some of them had autism, some of them did not. Um, But what I found was that all of the kids could relate to anxiety. Mm -hmm. And it even surprised their teachers how much they were like, yeah, you know what? I get, I get nervous all the time about that. Or, you know, it, it upsets me when there's a long line at the slide, you know, that they, they could relate to being upset by that. They just had skills to deal with it. And so it, it also demysticized explosive behavior. And what I found in my work is that my students might um, completely lose control of their emotions in the hallway or in the lunchroom. And it really scared other kids. Right. And we had all kinds of in-service for children when we started inclusion programs, but Mm -hmm. we never really did a very good job about explaining or demysticizing explosive behavior so that it could lower the concern of the um, kids, uh, the typical kids in mm-hmm. the school, and that they wouldn't be so worried about that child, and they would understand that we had a plan. Right. And it was a skill, and it was a skill that they really, that everybody finds difficult, but they have the skill uh, to deal with it. But um, this child needs more help and support. Right. And that would also kind of normalize that that whole process and also, you know, provide again, like I mentioned earlier, a common, you know, context for everyone to understand, oh, and, and then maybe sometimes you, you've even seen as children start to learn offering support and offering suggestions and being supportive Um, Whereas in the past, it may have been more of a, you know, excluding the child that's having a a behavior at that time, where now it's like, yeah, no, I I can kind of get like that, too. Um, I try this, maybe that will help or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But we were kind of making it a a normal, um, you know, a normal occurrence for all, you know, humans. And I think, you know, this work all together is just um, about shining a light on, you know, not just anxiety, but all of, of emotional regulation. And like you said, kind of just taking away this, um, I don't know, like this cloud around it so that it's not, it's not this thing that, you know, only have, I, I know that there was always like this negative heaviness around, um, you know, um, 
strong emotions. And so mm-hmm. we're, this takes that away and minimizes it and helps people learn tools to identify um, how they're feeling, how their bodies are feeling, give labels to it, be able to share that and communicate with other people, whether they touch a color, they touch a number, or they can use words. Um, I think it's just uh, a, a really great foundation that, and I, n- now we see why people are have uh, connected so well with it, because mm-hmm. it is, it, I think it is that kind of a tool. So I thank you for bringing that to us. Oh, well, you are welcome. <laughs> Thank you <for> it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I look forward to your, you know, learning more about um, your your film um, and how that ends up progressing. That would be fun. And yeah. Um, and so if people, like I mentioned, there's a lot of information on your website and a lot, I, I don't know where else you might have some things. So could you share what some of somewhere some of the resources where people can find you? I think that's about all. The only place you can find me these okay. days <laughs> is the website. <laughs> is the website. I mean, yeah, that's just fivepointscale.com, five, the numeral five. And um, yeah, I've got just about everything on there. You can order any of the books that you're interested in. I have a series of, of five-point scale books. You know, a five could make me lose control. A five is against the law. You know, just mm-hmm. <laughs> I saw that one. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. yeah, so you're covering a wide range of again ages and and um and ways of using the same tool. So yeah. so I will put that in the description. And I'm I'm so thrilled that you uh, were here with me this afternoon. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It was an honor. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh, and if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching, and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com, and when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.